today, together, you and I are going to learn the rest of the story. That was the late, great radio broadcaster Paul Harvey, who made his name telling little-known facts about newsmakers and famous people, telling the rest of the story. And we have adopted this name for our annual show, where we follow up with the people we've met over the last year. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm David Kestenbaum. We got one story for you about weed, one about a billion-dollar bet. And the third story is a mystery that consumed all of us here at Planet Money headquarters. Who is Jennifer? And why are we talking about her bat mitzvah 20 years later? So, Robert, one of my favorite stories that we did this year, it ended with an actual cliffhanger. It was a story about this company that sells weight loss shakes, among other things, and a guy who placed a huge bet against this company. He said it was a pyramid scheme. The company Herbalife was not pleased. Here's a clip from CNBC at the time. Welcome back to uh, Street Signs, everybody, in CNBC. There's Herbalife stock down 14.6%. The news, Bill Ackman, noted investor, shorting this stock. And right now we are joined by the CEO of Herbalife, Michael Johnson. He has called in. Johnson couldn't wait to talk. We're not a pyramid scheme. That's a bogus accusation. We have millions of customers around the world. Mr. Ackman's proposition that or the United States will be better when Herbalife is gone. The United States will be better when Bill Ackman's gone. David, you did this story with Jacob Goldstein, who is with us now. Mr. Goldstein? Hi, Robert. Hi, David. Hey. And you actually talked with Bill Ackman, the guy who is betting a fortune against these weight loss shakes. I did. He was happy to talk. He was sort of making the media rounds. Bill Ackman, he runs a big hedge fund. It's called Pershing Square Capital. And he told us his fund had done a lot of research into Herbalife, and they'd concluded that this giant publicly traded company was basically one big scam. Now, here's how Herbalife works. Their products aren't sold in regular stores. They're sold by ordinary people who are often working out of their homes. And these people, they can sign up other people to sell Herbalife. And those other people, they can sign up other people. This is called multi-level marketing. And there are a bunch of companies that work this way. There's Amway, Pampered Chef, Avon. But what Ackman said was that, as far as he could tell, almost nobody was actually buying Herbalife stuff to use it. It was just salespeople signing up other salespeople who bought some Herbalife stuff, but they never actually turned it around and sold it to final customers. And if Ackman is right about that, then this is a pyramid scheme and the whole thing could get shut down by the government. And that's what Ackman thinks is going to happen. He told us he had bet against the company by shorting its stock, which is basically a bet that the price of the stock is going to go down. And Ackman thinks the stock is going to go down all the way to zero. Here's Ackman. What Herbalife is doing is it's effectively taking money from poor people and, uh, and promising, telling them that you can make it. It's just a question of how hard you work, selling them on hopes and dreams. And unfortunately, they're, they're sold a bill of goods. It's a pyramid scheme. How sure are you about that? I think it's a certainty. So you're short a billion dollars worth of Herbalife. That's correct. That's a big bet. It's a very big bet. It's probably one of the bigger shorts of all time, I would say. One of the bigger shorts of all time. Now, after the story aired, this was about a year ago, the story took another amazing turn. Another hedge fund guy got involved, but on the opposite side. Yeah, he bet that the stock was going to go way up. His name is Carl Icahn, and Icahn and Bill Ackman, they 
hate each other. I mean, if these guys walked into a restaurant, you'd want to seat them in like separate rooms entirely. CNBC got both of them on the phone at once to talk about Herbalife, but they never actually got around to it. They kept rehashing this old lawsuit between the two of them. And at one point, they started arguing over whether the other person had asked them to be their friend or not. Here, you're going to hear Ackman first and then Icon. I, I told Carl after the whole thing, he called me up, and he literally said, you know, Bill, we can be friends now. Okay, I wish I had a recording of the conversation. I simply said to him, I said, look, Carl, you are no friend of mine. And, and that was it. And, and okay. uh, every time, so he goes on TV, he wants to slander me. I'm going to defend myself. I, I never said that I want to be friends with, with you, Bill. I wouldn't okay. be friends okay, with Carl. you. And okay. I would, you said okay, to Carl. me, you'd, you'd like to be friends so that we could invest together. Uh, Carl, I have no interest. Uh, do you think I want to invest with you? Okay, let's, let's move on. I would invest with you let's, if let's you move were the last man on earth. So we have these two powerful guys on the opposite sides of a bet over Herbalife, of all things. It's a year later. Where are things now? The stock price has gone up a lot, which means Carl Icahn is up and Bill Ackman is down. He's down a lot. But Ackman still hasn't given up. So, you know, this could turn around in the end. He might eventually make money. But one of the interesting things about betting against a stock, about shorting a stock like like Ackman is, and, and one of the reasons really people don't do it more often, is you have to pay just to keep the bet alive. When we interviewed him about a year ago, Ackman told us it was costing him $70 million a year just to keep this bet in place. And he's restructured it a little bit since then, but it's still costing him a lot just to keep this thing going. We did make a request for a follow-up interview with Ackman, which was uh, declined. But he has done a couple interviews, and in one of them he said he is going to take this bet against Herbalife, quote, to the end of the earth. And that may sound like hyperbole, but Ackman has done this kind of thing before. In 2002, he shorted a company called MBIA. This company was insuring a lot of mortgages. And he lost money for a long time on that one. But he held on. And after seven years, he wound up making a big profit. So maybe I'll be back here, Robert, on the rest of the story, 2020 edition, talking about how this whole Herbalife short ended. We'll finally figure out who won the bet. Jacob Goldstein, thanks. Thanks, guys. One of the things we love to talk about on Planet Money is drugs, illegal drugs. We have talked to heroin dealers. We have talked to marijuana dealers. We have talked to people trying to set up marijuana businesses. And the reason we love it so much is that it's this sort of secret, illegal market where I think personally, like, economic forces are a lot clearer to see because there's not a lot of government regulation involved. It's just illegal. And so you can really see issues of supply and demand and how people are figuring out how to create this micro-secret economy. Well, last fall, this whole secret part changed, at least in two states. Colorado and Washington made marijuana legal. And Hannah Jaffe-Walt, who I'm going to call our drug correspondent, was really into this at <laughs> the time. I've been dreaming of that title my whole career. You are the drug correspondent. <laughs> you actually talked to a bunch of people in Washington state about sort of the, the mechanics of what happens when you want to set up a legal marijuana business. Right. And well, one of the questions was, if you're going to have all these businesses that are going to be selling marijuana and processors who are going to be processing marijuana and growers, they're going to be bringing in money and they're going to need somewhere to put that money. And where are they going to put that money? As we know, marijuana is still not legal on the federal level. In Washington state, they already have medical marijuana dispensaries. So I started asking about a year ago what those people do. A guy named John Davis, who runs a medical marijuana dispensary in Seattle, has this problem. You know, if you have $50,000 in a bank account, that's not a big deal. If you have $50,000 in cash, you're at risk. 
you will get robbed and uh which is a, a business fail. <laughs> John, Absolutely. John told me not having banking creates all these failures for running a business. He couldn't get his money anywhere safe. So he's literally storing it in safes or under mattresses. He, he needed people to pay in cash. So he put an ATM in his store, but then he couldn't get anybody to stock his ATM because people were worried there'd be some federal crackdown and they'd lose their cash. He couldn't take credit cards. Also, how do you pay your taxes? You know, there's sales tax and you can't go into the DOR, the Department of Revenue, and, you know, give them a wad of cash. And, you know, how do you pay your federal taxes with a money order? So this was a year ago where everyone was worried about, okay, how do you set up this basic financial infrastructure for marijuana? And so Washington's had a year to work out some of these kinks, some of the financial infrastructure. And Hannah, you called John Davis back. And what did he say? Have they worked everything out? The state has worked out a lot. So the state has made all these kinds of decisions over the last year about how this market is going to work, like how many stores they're going to be and how much they're going to tax the pot and who's going to grow it and where are they going to be allowed to grow. The banking question, though, which is everybody says central to actually making this market work, is still not really been resolved. John Davis essentially has to have a shell company that has a bank account and then run all of his pot business underneath that shell company. And he thinks that's probably how people are going to get started up running on the on the legal side as well. So he might be using a bank we've heard of, but... He wouldn't tell me the name. He will not tell you the name. You mentioned price. And of course, you know, uh, price is usually determined in a marketplace. And when we talk about the price of illegal drugs, you're you're paying for a lot of things. You know, you're paying for the fact that the dealer might get caught. You're paying for protection. Sometimes you're, you're paying for smuggling and, and guns and all these horrible things. Now that Washington State has removed the illegal part of it, how do you figure out how much an ounce of marijuana is worth? Do you think the price could be a lot cheaper, right? Because you don't have to pay people for taking all this risk and for, you know, running an illegal operation. But there is this concern that if the price goes too low, then you both have, you know, teenagers being able to buy lots of pot for a very cheap amount of money. You have people who are addicted to pot being able to consume more of it and wanting to consume more of it. And you have this problem of what what we have called on the show before marijuana arbitrage, where you have some dealer who wants to sell pot to people buying the pot cheap in a state where it is legal, where the price is cheaper, and then going to a state where it's illegal and selling it for a lot more money. So if the price of marijuana is too low in Washington state, there will be U-Hauls filled with it headed east toward us <laughs> right. here in, in New York City. But, but then you have the opposite problem. Yeah. So the opposite problem is that the price is too high. And if you want to have a market that's legal and regulated and you want to be able to regulate that market, you don't want the price to be so high that people say, like, forget it. I'm not going to pay that much for a gram because I can go down the block and get it for half the price. And you can imagine a scenario whereby it's too high because maybe you have a store and signage and advertising, right? Like there are there are a lot of costs in running a legal business. So how does Washington State solve this conundrum, this uh, Goldilocks, right? It can't be too cheap. It can't be too expensive. Washington State is not electing to control price. They're not setting the price. They're going to have, you know, market-based forces influencing what the price are. They do have some ways to sway what the price is because they they license the growers. So if they license tons of growers and there's lots of supply, that would make the price cheaper. And they have taxes. And right now they're taxing it fairly heavily at every single step of the production. All right. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. Planet Money listeners, if you see U-Hauls filled with marijuana leaving Washington State, let us know. <laughs> 
We have one final update for you today, and this is a coda to our T-shirt series. Now, David, you and Gregory Warner, who's NPR's East Africa correspondent, did a piece on what happens to T-shirts after we stop using them. Maybe you throw them away. Maybe you give them to charity. Well, some of those T-shirts end up in Africa. And one T-shirt in particular stood out in the show we did. Uh, Gregory Warner, he founded an outdoor market in Nairobi. Oh, my God. Jennifer's Bat Mitzvah, November 20th, 1993. This shirt has been around. Yeah. It's remarkably good condition, though, for being um, 20 years old. Now, when you see this shirt... You want to know, like, what what is the story with this? It had all these cartoon characters on it. And in big letters, it said, Dancing with the Toons, T-O-O-N-S. And there was Bugs Bunny on drums and the Flintstones and Betty Boop was dancing. It, like, it raised all these questions like, whose shirt was this? How did it end up in Africa 20 years after the bat mitzvah? And how did that party go? And it was funny because you, David, you walked in to the newsroom one morning and you said... This is my mission for today. My mission for today is I am going to track down this T-shirt, and this is what the internet is good at. Yeah, right? I mean, we just put it out there. Like, someone's got to find this person. Yeah, right? we, we posted the T-shirt. We sent it all out on everyone's Twitter feeds and say, help us solve this mystery. And there was another clue. Because if you, if you zoomed in on the photo to look at the T-shirt, there in the neck of the shirt, remember, this is in Africa, there's, there's a name tag you can still see, and the name on it, Rachel Williams. And this guy who works for a Jewish online news service saw this. And so he took like the year of the bat mitzvah, 1993, did the math, figured out how old she would be. And he did a search for friends of friends of his on Facebook, whose first name was Rachel in that age range. And he found her. I called her up. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes, that's my shirt. It was pretty funny to see my name on the internet. I'm not, I don't usually get very much internet coverage, so it was interesting to see this question. Where is Rachel Williams? And here I am. Rachel's last name is Aronson. Now she's an international tax attorney in Chicago. And she explained one mystery, the name tag. Of course, she said, it's from Jewish summer camp. My mom spent hours ironing on name tags to all of my camp clothes, which to me is one of the most amazing parts that she ironed that name tag on over 20 years ago, and it has stayed on. So that's Rachel. It was Rachel's shirt. But what about Jennifer? Jennifer's bat mitzvah, right? Her party. Rachel has been in touch with Jennifer, and so we were able to reach her also. Oh, I couldn't stop laughing. I was, it was crazy. It's insane. (laughs) 20 years later, who would think that my shirt would make it to Africa? You know, Robert, when this was bouncing around on the internet, there was speculation from some online detective types that maybe it was Dancing with the Tunes because that was a play on her last name. Maybe her last name was Tunes. She told me that's not true at all. It was just that she loved Betty Boop at the time, and so that was the theme for the party. And the reason that the shirt took 20 years to get to Africa is basically that it had been in Rachel's mom's basement for a long time, <laughs> and she recently donated it to charity. Robert, I have uh, the backstory for one other shirt for you. All right. Oh, oh, a bright neon yellow. What does it say? AJ Root Soapbox Derby. What does it say at the very end? Soapbox Derby team. team. Oh, okay. And there's sort of this picture of wings and a little guy in a Soapbox Derby racer. And Medina, Medina Bees, something like this. This makes it's no awesome, sense. awesome, right? Yeah. When, when Jacob and I were in Africa and going through the markets. This, this, is, one, this is what you picked out? I wanted All the this. t-shirts I in Africa? One. I was like, what is the story behind that one? So we actually put this one online too, and I got an email back pretty quickly from a guy, Matt Richardson, who wrote, 
Only 20 of these shirts were made. It is a custom design by a student at AI Root Middle School, Medina, Ohio, worn by the winning Gravity Challenge team in 2012. Maria Richardson, who's his daughter <laughs> in middle school, drove the winning car. Ah, so you're wearing a winner. I brought it home. Now you know the rest of the story. Do it in the voice. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> I love it. I could do Paul Harvey imitations all day long. As always, let us know what you think. You can send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. And you can catch us online, npr.org slash money, where you can listen to the old shows that we did and, of course, many new shows to come, 2014. I'm Robert Smith. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.